welcome to Side Talks, the Corey. The, the official podcast <laughs> of the Sidewalk Film Festival and the Sidewalk Film Center and Cinema, which Cinema. is now a thing that's open. Come come see a movie with us. What's your name? Oh, I'm Corey Kraft. I'm a, a programmer for the Sidewalk Film Festival and Sidewalk Film Center and Cinema. And I'm Rachel Morgan. I am the creative director for all those things that Corey just mentioned. And we welcome you to the podcast where we talk about all things. Will you sing it? No. Cinema. Cinema. What a baby. Yeah. Uh, sorry in advance. Yeah. That's, Here that's we all go. we need to say. Get ready for a five-minute fight. Five-minute. Round one. Fight. fight. All right, Rachel. Are you ready for another five-minute fight? You know, I don't. I don't know that I am, but I don't have any choice but to be ready because I'm right. in the armchair and yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. What are we arguing about? I cannot remember. Jordan Peele's Us. Ooh. Okay. Get everybody get ready once again. Start the clocks. Get ready to hate Rachel. Here it comes. I'm going to be wrong again. Go ahead. Let's hear it. You like us. I like it a lot. I think it's terrific. Oh, it was on. This is what called my attention to it. Okay. Uh-huh. Because I don't want to go on the record and say that I dislike this film because sure. I do not dislike this film. Sure. But I, what, what flagged me to argue about this with you is that this landed on your list pretty high up of yeah. the best films of the year, way above The Nightingale, way above other stuff that was much better. And I really and truly think that you wanted to like this film and Ooh. you made yourself like this film. This film is not that good. I think this film's terrific. It's it's not, you know, as tight as well crafted as Jordan Peele's Get Out. His you're his right. It's not film. nowhere um, near. Not even in the same category. But I think it. I think it might be more ambitious. I think what and? he's saying about of course. I mean, he ma- he's made another film. He's got a bigger budget. He's got more access. It should be more ambitious. He doesn't. That doesn't give him an excuse to not succeed. Well, I, I think he did succeed. I, I think disagree. it's tremendously exciting. It's scary. It's got all these tremendous performances from these performers giving dual roles, both mm. as as their uh, their normal selves and then this shadow doppelganger version of themselves. Not going to argue with that. Not going to argue with the acting. I think the acting's very good. I think it looks I great. Think I think the it directing moves. is is okay. The, I the think direction the, is fantastic. The first thirty minutes of this thing, I'm on board and it's selling itself and I'm thinking this is a great freaking film, the first 30, 45 minutes, and then it just it just falls into shit. It just unravels and there's holes in it and there's problems. Why? And it becomes like at time at moments just kind of stupid. Oh. But but it has some great scenes and it has some great performances. And I think part of why I'm what part of why I'm arguing this is that it had the opportunity to be a really great film. Yeah. And it just sort of it just nosedives at a certain point and just doesn't it there's so many things that don't make any sense and are just kind of silly. I don't think does does it is it incumbent upon this movie to completely make sense I think or can it, has it work to make- on that sort of nightmarish uh, dream logic no. sort of metaphorical level. I, I disagree. I, I don't think that it's absolutely necessary for Jordan Peele to dot every I and cross every T in this movie because t- for me, this is working on the same level as, as something like a Brian De Palma thriller, um, which is style, which is metaphor, mm. which is great performances. And that's all I wanted from it. I got it and I got it in spades. I, I think this is a terrific movie. This is where I disagree with you. I think that, as you can see, Jordan Peele's very influenced by The Twilight Zone. I think this thing has to wrap up in a particular way yeah. and connect in a particular way in order for the promise that it's making to, to function and to work and to, and to be fulfilled. And I think it doesn't. You know, I think that mm. it's sort of there's some, for whatever reason, some loose ends that can't be connected. I don't. There's certain things I just don't believe and don't buy. And I become just increasingly disappointed as this film goes on in the last 30 minutes and I just sort of it fell apart for me 
I, I think the ending of this is terrific, and I'm not even talking necessarily about the final twist, which you know I, I think is is vital. Yeah, to and his I saw thematic. And well, so did I. I mean, I mean, that's part of the problem. I don't think that's a problem though, because it's so important to his metaphorical and thematic goals here, which is an exploration of an exploited underclass due to American capitalism. Um, this invisible society for back, lack of a better term, toiling and toiling and toiling and being uh, subject to horrible degradation while a certain, I don't know, certain percentage of Americans prosper and yes, thrive. Yes, and I get that, and I see that there, but I also think that there's that doesn't that can be there, and we can still make all the connections we need to make and wrap things up in a particular way that that fulfills the promise of what the first thirty minutes of his film lays out, and its film doesn't do that, unfortunately. And I don't actually know; I'd have to really sit with it. I've seen it twice. Yeah, I'd have to really sit with it, like like. And an edit suite, probably, and kind of go through to to try to make sense of what the hell went wrong here for me. But it 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 definitely went wrong. I, I think it stays atmospheric, intense, and and really involving and thrilling the whole way through. And I think there's so many terrific horror set pieces in this. Agreed with that. I agree with that. Agreed. So I I, I just I, I can't pinpoint a specific moment even thinking hypothetically where this could have gone off the rails for you. And I'm curious. About what do you that. mean? When, when things don't really add up, when they don't really connect and when it becomes just like, Oh my God, this is so obvious. And there's just these little moments too, where like, okay, the kids walking backwards and the lighting, the gasoline, like that, that right there alone is like, and then there's a point at the, about 75% of the way through where it just, I kind of go, man, this sure does feel tedious now. Mm, and no, that, and I that bothers that. me as well. So there's these sort of moments that I'm like, what? I don't, the, the sort of th- the way things are supposed to play out without spoiling anything, the way things are supposed to play out don't exactly connect and match. Mm. And in addition to that, we're a little on the rat wheel at the 75% mark. And I do think Get Out is such a strong film. Go ahead. I, no, I want to hear, I I mean, hear the yeah, rest of that. such a strong film, and I think that everybody got on board, myself included a bit, with like, this trailer looks awesome. This is the next sort of, let's hit this out of the park, Jordan Peele. We want this. We want you to succeed. We want this film to work. And I think that we... that that really and truly, if I'd gone in there with all my hopes and dreams and not wanting to leave them in the theater, then I would feel the same way you do. Hmm. But I've got to be realistic, because that's what I do. <laughs> and I don't think this film works. Not as a whole. Mm. Well, I disagree. All right, then. Sam. I feel like in these armchairs, we should have, like, cigarettes. Cigars. Just like, you know, just... <laughs> sure. Sam just does not want this to come is like, today. This is like the McLaughlin group <laughs> now, where we're just like... You know, actually, I think that your position on foreign policy is, is uh, it's hard to back up. I think Us is infinitely better than Get Out, so Rachel already loses right there. We both disagree with you. Wait, what? You said that? No! Get Out's much better. No, no way. Um, get Out isn't as good as Us. Oh my god. Um, <laughs> and yeah, actors play alternate versions of themselves without it feeling like an acting gimmick. Um, Rachel says it nosedives, and I don't think it does. It keeps going uphill and hits this awesome peak. Um, so I'm going to say Rachel gets minus 30,000 points for saying just the first 30 minutes are good. Um, and it's definitely more of a metaphor um, for people figuratively underground, um, not literally underground in this weird research lab. Um, it didn't wrap up all the plot points because it was more about that central metaphor and not a down-to-earth movie with a, like a tight, realistic plot. 
Um, so I think it's infinitely more satisfying with some of those plot points left open. It's because having exact answers to everything can be just a little boring. Um, and yeah, Corey wins this one for sure. You heard my gong. You win this one because you didn't even react when I gonged you. So you win this one. You're both wrong, though. Really. I mean, I won, but I don't feel great about that. <laughs> and now a look at what we're watching this week. So, hey, Corey, what are you watching? So I'm going to detour away from the land of cinema very briefly and talk about um, its mortal enemy, the television series. What? I don't think that's actually true. Um, But I've been blowing off steam um, in the weeks following the festival and in this sort of maelstrom of (laughs) uh, employment responsibilities by um, catching up on some TV series that, that have been strongly recommended to me. What? Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and one of those series is the, the HBO series Secession, um, which I think might be one of the best things on TV right now, um, even in this era where there are, I think, about 400,000 television mm-hmm. series that everybody wants you to watch at all times, and they're like, you know, 20,000. Have you 000. seen such and such? It's the era of episodic. Yeah. I'm like, ugh, don't. Yes, I've seen. I mean, I, I know I, I'm about aware it. that it exists. It's on Netflix, along with 20,000 other right. things that I intend to watch one day. But clearly you like this. Secession is amazing. It's it's tremendous. It is um, created by a guy named Jesse Armstrong, who was one of the co-writers of Armando Iannucci's film In the Loop from uh, 2009, um, which is itself sort of this just astoundingly profane, fast-paced satire on modern politics. This is an astoundingly profane, fast-paced takedown of this uh, 1% uh, media mogul family led by Brian Cox uh, and his... Uh, large adult sons who all are plotting to take over the family business and are completely incapable of doing so. Um, it's, um, you know, a an hour-long ostensibly drama, but it's funnier than just about anything on TV right now, um, that is nonstop backstabbing, plotting, just the most venal, corrupt, horrible behavior. And yet there is something about these characters that you find yourself if not, you know, compelled to sympathize with, certainly drawn to and engaged with on a, on a human level. Um, it's probably one of the best acted television series on on right now. Nominated for a couple Emmys, not as much, not as many as it should be. I made, I pretty much made my way through season one um, super quickly. Season two, as of this recording, is airing now. Um, so if you feel so compelled to catch up with any number of episodic television series, um, put Secession near the top of your list. It really is uh, terrific um, and has just this amazing stable of guest stars, uh, including Holly Hunter, uh, Jeannie Berlin, um, Danny Houston, um, just a number of like real ringers popping up and, and giving these these amazing um single episode or, or recurring arcs that are, that are really just terrific. Yeah, I can't weigh in on that at all, but I'll take your word for it. Well, I recommend it strongly. Well, what I'm watching is, so we were in the cinema the other day, and, uh, and you know, there's a credit card commercial on, and um, it's Taylor Swift, and she puts too much whipped cream on the Sunday, and she's, like, making all these mistakes, and it's really, really cute. And I love it so much. And it's 
for a major credit card line, and I normally am like done with people when they do that. And you know, I've been just like, I love to go on tears and tangents about Jennifer Aniston's lame ass and how she <laughs> sen- tries to sell the eye stuff and the water and the. De- but yet somehow I'm just like adorably in love with this this um, credit card commercial with Taylor Swift in it. It's so cute. Uh, and I'm not even joking right now. That's what you've been watching. <laughs> that is what I've been watching. <laughs> Uh, no, actually, uh, it well, yes, actually, it is. And I mean, you guys see this commercial. She's really, really adorable in it. I mean, she just makes mistakes and it's adorable. Anyway, so, um, but I also the other night w- watched a film that I had never seen, uh-huh. teen film, um, A24, which I was surprised to see that logo come up. But I was like, I'm going to catch this. I, I need to get caught up on some things. And I'm doing a little like research on some teen films for other things. And um, and so I watched The Spectacular Now. Oh, I love The Spectacular Now. Oh, I didn't like it. Oh, so no. we're going to have to five minute fight that later. We just could. Let's let's mark that one down. Oh, I won't say bummer. too much about it because I'm going to save it for my argument. Um, now, I love the title. Mm. I think that's an, I think it's a great title. Did not like this film. As a matter of fact, I have problems with this film. So um, we'll just, you know, I'll, I'll leave it at, uh, we'll, we'll counter that and I'll just leave it at I'm watching this credit card commercial with Taylor Swift. Well, you're, are, you're happier talking about that credit card commercial <laughs> than I think I've seen you in it's weeks. It's really cute. In you weeks. watch it. And now, Fast Film Terms. Hey, Corey. Hey, Rachel. Fast Film Terms. Is it, it's that time again, huh? <laughs> fast Film Terms. All right. What's a martini? Well, it, you see, it's it's a it's a drink that sometimes adults like to to sip on. You're right, but it's also actually the last shot of the day. So when you say, "Hey, we're getting ready for the martini," or "We're just one shot away from the martini," or "This is the martini," that means it's the last shot of the day. And I bet you can guess, you know, how that evolved. Because you you get to drink a martini after you finish the last shot of the day. That's right, especially during that golden age of Hollywood when everybody was a man and everybody was white and they made lots of money and they drank martinis when they were done shooting. There's so much. The the etymology of so many of these terms is just fascinating because there's no apparent origin for this. It's just like, well, everybody drinks a martini, so we're just going to call this unrelated thing that. Yeah. All I think it makes perfect sense. I mean, it doesn't, but it's interesting. What it might have been to be a white man in, you know, classic I, Hollywood I can, era, drinking imagine. martinis and, um, you know, sexually assaulting women. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, they did that, yeah, but we don't have to. <laughs> I'm sitting here just waiting for you to sing What's the Shit. We're going to sit here and wait till you sing it, Corey. I'm not going to do it. What's the shit? That's your lead. What is, what is that called when you give the lead vocal or like you give a, not a lead vocal, but a, like a, when you follow the vocal? I, uh, I don't know. Uh-huh. What's I'm, this? I'm Sing not it. Not to be fall in. Like Linda Ronstadt <laughs> talks about it. You fall right. What's this shit? You can fall right into that. Okay, never mind. Yeah, that's just not going to happen. I'm at the I'm gym. I'm at the gym. I'm on the treadmill. I'm on the station. I'm on the whatever. The okay, stage. I know. I'm, I'm in there. I'm really doing my best to uh, work out, in <laughs> uh, quotes. And on the screen is something I think that you're going to get this one really, really fast, too. You've been getting them very quick lately. Um, but it's going to it's gonna hit pretty hard when I say there's okay. dinosaurs. Uh-huh. Okay, so you already kind of know. We only have so many options here. That's right. There's dinosaurs. There's some sort of computer screen mm-hmm. um, with some graphics on it. There's a uh, some aerial footage, and there's some brontosaurus that are like revealed, and people are like, "Oh my goodness, there's brontosaurus!" Um, and then it's apocalyptic, and then there's a much older Jeff Goldblum. I know you're going to get it. Go ahead. It's Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom. The, it is the fifth of those movies. 
Um, it's not very You good. just identified that it was the fifth of those movies based on dinosaurs, which, by the way, would be in all five of them. Yeah, that uh, checks out. Yep. And um, I guess that's what 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 really caught your attention to allow you to know that it was five. Well, I imagine by apocalyptic, you oh. refer to the volcano explosion. That's like the big set piece in the first half of that movie. And Jeff Goldblum is only in three of them. He's only in the first two and he's not very old. And gotcha. then he's in this most recent one as sort of like he showed up for the afternoon and they were like, here, testify in front of the Senate or whatever happens. Um, this is some next level shit for you to know that this was five. I'm just I'm just saying because I thought we would end up with, well, it's clearly a Jurassic Park and it could be this one or this one. But you like confidently came in with like this is five. I Oof. Is it really is it really that atypical, though? I mean, like I'm, you know, Jurassic Park Rain Man here. Yeah, this is a, it's true. This isn't uh, that wasn't that wasn't very taxing. I'm about to go hit the gong just because I feel like it needs to happen. <laughs> anyway, well, that was what's the shit. You got it in no time. Yeah, it's not a good movie. And now we'd like to welcome Charlie Brown Sanders the third to the studio for his segment Film History Minute with Charlie Brown. Today I'm going to talk about a movie called Ishtar, released in 1987, starring Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman. Not only is Ishtar considered a commercial and critical failure, it has been called the worst movie ever made. Columbia Pictures refused to promote it. It became a sitcom punchline. And there was even a Far Side cartoon entitled Hell's Video Store that showed a man surrounded with shelves of movies and all of them are Ishtar. At the time, Far Side creator Gary Larson had not seen the movie, he just knew its reputation. Years later, he saw Ishtar while on a plane and issued an apology because he liked it. Martin Scorsese and Richard Linklater listed among their favorite movies. A review in the New Yorker magazine called it a wildly original work of genius. And it has a cult following of devoted fans. So what's the story? Ishtar was written and directed by Elaine May, who was widely regarded as a comic mastermind in the 1950s. She had been one half of the pioneering improv comedy team Nichols and May with Mike Nichols. After their breakup, May directed a few small-scale comedies and wrote screenplays, including an Oscar-winning script for Heaven Can Wait in 1978. She also worked as a script doctor and advisor on Reds for Warren Beatty, for which he won Best Director, and she did the same on Tootsie for Dustin Hoffman, who was nominated for Best Actor. Beatty felt he owed May for the support she had given his career, and so he offered to produce and star in her new screenplay, Road to Ishtar. To co-star, he enlisted Dustin Hoffman, who also owed May a favor. Then, Beatty went to his friend, Guy McElwain, the head of Columbia Pictures, and made a deal for a $30 million picture, about twice the budget of most comedies at the time. Ishtar was inspired by The Road to Morocco, one of the campy road comedies starring Bob Hope and Bing Crosby from the 40s. May's takeoff revolved around a duo of untalented American songwriters who land a booking in Morocco, and stumble into a Cold War standoff. Beatty changed the title out of fear of being compared to Hope and Crosby, which, of course, was exactly the point. May had a reputation for being a perfectionist, as did Beatty and Hoffman. All three loved to argue. So, as expected, there were ego clashes and massive budget overruns created by conflicting creative decisions along with the expensive difficulties of shooting in Morocco. Shortly after production wrap, Beatty's friend McElwain was fired as head of Columbia and replaced with British producer David Putnam. Months before Ishtar's release, news articles attributed to anonymous sources began appearing in the national media. 
Many of these stories were fabricated, such as one about a snake charmer whose cobra had a heart attack from May's relentless demand for retakes. May suggested in jest that the CIA was behind all the press scrutiny because her script made fun of America's foreign policy in the Middle East. One story about a hunt for a blind camel became a Hollywood legend. Actually, the hunt was for a blue-eyed camel that would register blind on film. The hunt began at the camel market in Marrakesh, where the film's animal trainers quickly found a blue-eyed camel. But not wanting to buy the first one they saw, they kept looking. After viewing hundreds of camels, they learned that the blue-eyed camels are extremely rare. So they returned to the first market to buy the blue-eyed camel they had seen. Sorry, the dealer replied, we ate it. The New York Times ran a story on the generous contracts that Beatty had negotiated for himself in Hoffman. Among other perks, the two actors were allowed to bring in their own film editors. Instead of collaborating, three teams of editors worked separately around the clock, being paid double time to create three films which were then painstakingly combined into one. Early previews of the film received positive reviews from test audiences, but Ishtar was dead on arrival when released nationwide in the summer of 1987. Negative publicity had turned audiences against it before they even saw it. Earning back $15 million of its $51 million cost, Ishtar was hardly the worst box office bomb of all time, but it ended May's career as a director. Although it has to be noted that male directors with greater losses continued making pictures. May would go on to write screenplays for The Birdcage and Primary Colors and win a Tony Award for acting. But the question remains... Who was the anonymous source behind all the bad press before the film was released? In 2019, Ishtar's artistic consultant Philip Schoper shared a commonly held theory that Ishtar was sabotaged by its own studio head, David Putnam, who had taken over at Columbia from Beatty's friend McElwain. For starters, Putnam hated Dustin Hoffman. A decade earlier, the two had made a film together, and Putnam described Hoffman as one of the nastiest people he'd ever worked with. Putnam also feuded with Warren Beatty, telling an interviewer that Beatty's budget for $42 million for Reds was a disgrace to the film industry. Putnam had produced Best Picture winner Chariots of Fire on a budget of $5.5 million, the same amount Beatty was paid for his acting services on Ishtar. And lastly, as a vocal critic of movies with inflated budgets, Putnam may have encouraged the movie to fail by planting negative publicity to prove his point. Even if he wasn't responsible, he certainly didn't do anything to stop it and prior to its release, he had predicted that Ishtar would be a flop. Today, Elaine May sums up the experience by saying, If all the people who hated Ishtar had seen it, I'd be a rich woman today. So now it's time for Cal's Corner. Cal McKinnon is a features programmer for the Sidewalk Film Festival and Cinema. He's going to take a few minutes to talk about whatever the heck he wants to. Hi, I'm Kyle. Anyone who knows me well knows that I'm obsessed with the 1979 film Over the Edge. It remains one of my all-time favorite film-going experiences, which I'll get into later, and the recent passing of Rick Ocasek from The Cars had me thinking about the film again. Um, The movie takes place in a small planned community in Colorado, full of new houses and recently transplanted families, where the kids have pretty much nothing to do for leisure. There's no malls, uh, there's no theaters, no bowling alleys. Um, These teens spend their time cutting class, killing time in the Quonset wreck hut and prowling around at night looking to score drugs. 
One such scene features three of the main characters walking through a playground late at night. The Cars song, Just What I Needed, plays on a distant radio as the camera follows the main characters moving past group after group of kids. We catch little glimpses of conversations. We, we watch one kid inquiring about the price of hash, while another kid plays air guitar to the Cars song. The camera passes by one group sitting on the merry-go-round where this long-haired dude in a jean jacket brags, We each did about two lewds. And this girl says, They were rainbows. And he fires back with, Rainbows are lewds. The scene, like the movie as a whole, is both a little ridiculous and also really enticing. Like, I would kill to be hanging out in that world as a kid, with the music of cheap tricks seemingly playing everywhere I go. In college, I was in charge of the Cinema Guild. It's our free Thursday night art house series. I booked a 16mm print of Over the Edge and promoted the hell out of it. I told everyone I knew to see it, and I learned Photoshop so that I could make flyers and put them out all over campus. It was a packed house, and the crowd ate it up. I mean, there was tons of cheering, there was laughing, and I mean, it was everything you could possibly want for a screening. Now, let me back up a little bit. There was a police officer around campus who was notorious for busting students. He busted a ton of my friends. He busted me for weed one time. He had a reputation really just for being a total dick. I know this from firsthand. Um, Everyone strongly disliked this guy. Uh, There's a character in the movie named Officer Doberman. He's played by Harry Northup, and he bore a lot of similarities to this police officer. You just really, really wanted to throw something at this guy. Now, spoiler alert. So... During the huge takeover of the school in the last act, the audience is howling, just loving it, like shoving their fists in the air. Afterwards, Officer Doberman is taking Carl back to the police station. His car swerves off the road and he crashes into a giant propane tank. He's unconscious at the wheel. Carl breaks free and runs away from the police car and the car just blows up, killing Doberman. When that happened, the audience erupted and began chanting. Okay, so I'm making this name up. They began chanting, kill Officer Smith, kill Officer Smith. Like a few people stood up chanting and for the briefest flash, like it really, really seemed like we were about to just take it out to the streets and flip over some cars. I was laughing so hard, tears were coming out of my eyes. Um, It was all just wrong, but it felt so, so good. Every once in a while, I'll run into somebody who was present for that, and we just talk about it and laugh about that that moment. Um, the film ends beautifully with some, some of the kids being bused to a juvenile detention center, all while Valerie Carter's stunning version of Ooh Child plays over the credits. Now, Carter also sang backup vocals for Eddie Money, who we also lost this week. She's the one singing the background harmony on the song, I Want to Go Back. If you've never seen Over the Edge, I highly recommend you seek it out. It's currently available on DVD and for rent on Amazon streaming. Um, This is Mandatory Watching, and I'm Carl McCarnan. Thanks. Kyle McKinnon is a feature film programmer for the Sidewalk Film Center and Cinema. Thank you so much for listening. We're your own cinematic um, Chevy Chase and Bill Murray. Ooh. Oof. Oof. Can so, worms. Are you going to call me a medium talent? I wouldn't call either one of those human beings medium talents. Yeah. Well, that was the, the apparently the vicious barb that uh, Murray directed at Chase. I think famously. that's wrong. I think Chevy Chase is intensely talented, but um, I'm you're, you know, you're the Chevy Chase. Okay. <laughs> Great. Oh. Uh, 
Yeah, awesome. Okay, I I, I've, got things, I've got things I want to say in response to that, but I don't want to do it on <laughs> mic. Okay, um, visit us oh, on um, on social media at Sidewalk Fest uh, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and check us out at the Sidewalk Film Center and Cinema, which is open for business. We're showing movies. Come Serving see up one. Pretzel bites. Oh, those Serve- pretzel bites are—they're they're good. There's about to be some French fries, from what I've heard. Now I'm going to get—I'm going to once Aaron listens, this is going to be like, why'd you promise people French fries? Don't promise people French fries. There have been samples of French fries served to me, and I've tasted them, and you know what? They're good. They're good. They're good. So Aaron can—you know—I think he can make a French fry or two for some guests. And if Boutwell Studios were to come over and visit us, we would give them French fries come because get some French we fries, love guys. them, and they are so nice to us. And so a big, huge thank you to Boutwell Studios, and thank you to Splash ninety six for our great theme song, which uh, starts us off on the right note every time. Later days, dude. Yeah, later, buddy. Boutwell Studios Podcast Division. Your words, our expertise.